0: Section 11 of The Red Lamp by Mary Roberts Reinhart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. August 6th. Halliday's expert was not particularly helpful, I gather. We have this to our advantage, however, if advantage it be. The typing was done on a Remington machine. As I had expected, he does not take any Cochran's story very seriously, but he bases his skepticism rather on the beginning of the terror before the boy came than on the attack on the boy himself. After all, he says... "'How do we know that it wasn't the old man himself who knocked him out? "'I imagine he has considerable strength in that one arm of his. "'It's difficult, but I'll suppose it.' "'Suppose the old chap heard him outside,' he went on, "'trying to get back into the house and thought it was somebody else, "'the killer, we'll say. "'He'd be pretty well justified in banging him on the head with a poker. "'Granton, he could have got there, which I doubt. "'How could he have tied him?' "'One point for you,' he said, "'and one more theory hanged with its own rope.' Still, you admit it's a nice idea to play with. Mr. Bethel kills a burglar with a poker, sees it as his secretary, rings the bell and calls help, and then gets up to his room and pretends to be asleep. It was Gordon who rang the bell. Oh, well, have it your own way, he said disgustedly. But it was a pretty thing while it lasted. And it's my opinion still that there is more in it than meets the eye. Aside from this blind alley up which any Cochrane started us, we are all more nearly normal than we have been since the early days of the summer. I rise, shave, and bathe, and go to my breakfast, no longer with the feeling that it may be, figuratively speaking, my last. Jane is at the table, fresh in the crisp ginghams she affects, and which in their turn are no crisper than the bacon. She must have been sadly puzzled the last few weeks, she shows such evident relief now. Sometime during the meal, Edith, who has been awaiting her turn at our solitary tub, breezes into the room and, surrounded by her usual aura, pats Jock, kisses Jane, and takes from me the society portion of the morning paper after a casual glance at the mail, And you step outside, Thomas preparing to wash the veranda, where the boy who has taken poor Maggie's place brings a faint color to her face. But in case it turns out to be Halliday, she is cavalier in the extreme. Morning, she says airily, and it may be, adds, where on earth did you get that shirt? What's the matter with this shirt? Nothing at all, she says, resuming her breakfast. I just thought maybe someone had given it to you. It isn't exactly the sort of shirt one buys, is it? her glance appeals to me. I am for a moment the arbiter between them. It is a perfectly good shirt, I say with decision, and am accused of sex solidarity and poor taste, both apparently equal sins in Edith's eyes. It is the apotheosis of the trivial. Small things once more make up our lives, and we find pleasure in them. Clara brings in more bacon, catches a reflection of our morning cheerfulness and smiles with us, and even Jock, hearing unaccustomed laughter, joins in with sharp staccato barks. We are not worried by the uncertainty of the prospect before us, the long period ahead of Edith and Halliday before they can marry, that next year and the year after that, and God knows how many years to come, I shall be pouring the priceless treasures of the English language into ears that will not hear, that my vacation is more than half over, and that its net result so far is a loss to me of some odd pounds of weight. We are once more safely behind the drainpipe. August 7th. Edith has today received a large sum of ten dollars for the lighthouse story. While she is still far from the opulence she has anticipated, there has been great excitement here today, on receipt of the check. She has kept a carbon copy, and has let me read it. It is well enough done, in her breezy fashion, but I find she has used the story of the so-called ghost at Twin Hollows as a basis to work from, and that she uses my name as the owner of the property. Quite aside from a distaste for seeing my name in print, I feel that the mere fact of its publication will give it a substantiality it has hitherto lacked. It is characteristic of the average mind often to question what it hears, but to believe wholeheartedly what it reads. I find that Halliday has been quietly working along the lines opened up by Annie Cochran. He is convinced that Gordon has been going out at nights clandestinely, and using the car to do so. I don't blame him for that. He said today, the cars there are not being used, and I'm not keen about Gordon, but from such views as I've had of Mr. Bethel, a little of him would go a long way. Gordon's disconnected the speedometer, by the way. But there's something else. He thinks it was Gordon who set fire to the boathouse. He found a bit of waste outside the garage, hanging on a limb of blue spruce there, and a similar scrap on the raised walk over the marsh to the boathouse. Of course, that isn't evidence, Skipper, he said, except what a trout in the milk might be, but the stuff's there and needs some thinking about. But why, I asked. There has to be a reason. I can go a long way for one, he said thoughtfully, and imagine he knows I've been working on the case and wants to get rid of me, but I grant that's not good. Burning me out wouldn't do that unless he hoped I was inside, but that is to imply that he is guilty of the crimes, and I don't believe it. But he added as an afterthought. There's one curious thing, though. That is, it may be curious, I'm not sure. The machine he's using is a Remington. August 8th. This has been a nerve-wracking day. I, for one, am willing to cry quits, to compromise with crime, and to say, in effect, that if the murderer leaves us alone, we will not disturb him. And yet the reason for my moral surrender does not lie in any event today on which I can place my hand— I cannot say that for this reason or for that I am through, discouraged, ready to go to the mountains and come back from a walk with a withered bunch of wild flowers held in my clenched hand, or to sit on some piazza with my after-dinner cigar and talk politics in the presence of the universe, or to go back to town and help Jane select a new wallpaper for my study. My condition probably arises from sheer confusion. For the life of me I cannot see where the results of Halliday's search can lead us, nor I think does he. Edith this morning at Halliday's request telephoned to Gordon and asked him to lunch with us. He accepted, after a brief hesitation, and promptly at one o'clock came down the drive, clad in white flannels and with an additional dose of pomade on his hair. Whether he was suspicious or not, we cannot tell. I know that, watching him from a window, partway down the drive he came to a dead stop and then turned, as if he had some idea of going back on some pretext or other. But he evidently thought better of it, looked at his watch, and came on again. He made a poor impression on us, furtively watching Jane's choice of fork or spoon, and otherwise bestowing most of his attention on Edith such attention, that is, as he bestowed on anybody at the beginning. He was what a novelist loves to call distray, although any question about himself roused him to a faint enthusiasm. He has, I suspect, an inordinate vanity. I am a sort of wanderer, he said once, apropos of some question or statement of mine. I stay in a place long enough to look about me and then I get the itch to move on. Restless, he added. And restless he was, From where he sat he had his back to the windows, but more than once he managed to turn and look out. I had the feeling that the small room enclosed him too much, that he felt somehow trapped. And more than once I found his eyes on me, and felt that he suspected me of some purpose he was attempting to discover. His nervousness finally infected me, and even Jane began to show signs of distress. The small lunch party, for some reason she could not understand, was going badly. Only Edith played up well. She pushed back her plate at last, and with her elbows on the table and her chin in her hands, said... "'And now tell us about the night you were hurt.' He was lighting a cigarette at the moment, and he halted, the match held in midair, and glanced from her to me. "'I'll do that,' he said, with his twisted smile, "'if Mr. Porter will tell me how he and the doctor both happened to be such donnies on the spot.' But he carried that no further, and although the covert insolence of the speech brought the colour to Edith's face, she continued to smile. "'There isn't much to tell,' he went on. "'The fellow got into the house all right. I turned to go in by the door and had him off, and that's all I remember. "'But you rang the bell first, didn't you?' Whether because he hated to acknowledge that call for help, or for some reason none of us can determine tonight, he hesitated. "'Yes,' he said finally. "'I was pretty well excited, but I suppose I did.' On the subject of the house itself he was more fluent, showing a considerable curiosity as to its history, and inquiring with more particularity than delicacy as to the circumstances surrounding Uncle Horace's death. "'The Cochran woman has a line of talk about it,' he gave us his explanation. "'Seems to think he was done in or something.' I told him of the doctor's verdict of heart failure, and he seemed to be considering that, but almost immediately he asked me if I had tried hearing the bell as far away as the high road, with the motor engine going. I don't believe it could be done, he said, with a sideways glance at me. He's got good ears, the doctor. He said something before he left about looking for another job, as this one was too confining, and the old man not easy to live with. I only took it for the summer, he said, and I'm about fed up with it. It's too confining. And he'd let that car of his rot before he'd let me take it out. With which clumsy attempt to alibi himself regarding the car, he took his departure. Edith believes that in some manner he knows that the car has been examined, and she may be right. Halliday's investigation of his room during his absence proceeded without difficulty. With my keys and Annie Cochran's connivance, he made an easy entry, Mr. Bethel having retired for his after-luncheon siesta. At first glance, the room offered nothing, and leaving Annie Cochran on guard outside, under pretense of cleaning the passage, Halliday made a more intensive search. The bed disclosed nothing, nor did the closet. His suitcase was locked, and over at Halliday spent more time than was entirely safe. Towards the end, he says, I was pretty shaky. I kept thinking I heard him, and of course the more I hurried, the more I bungled the thing. He got it open at last without breaking the lock, and found in it the notebook. I find I have given no description of the notebook in the original journal, as it played a considerable part in the approaching tragedy it deserves some attention. It was a small compact volume of the loose-leaf type, a sort of diary, but not regularly kept Most of the entries, due to the complication of the cipher, were very brief. One or two, however, occupied almost a page, and all of them had been typed. Needless to say, the cipher was the one we had found on the scrap of paper picked up in my garage. The discovery of the notebook with its cipher sent his excitement to fever pitch. He ran through it for the code word, but was unable to find it. Then, replacing the book and leaving the suitcase as he had found it, he set to work more carefully on the room itself. The coil of rope and the knife were behind a row of books on the bookshelf, a packet of typing paper, and a box of carbon sheets thrown over them with apparent casualness, to conceal them still further. So closely had he calculated the time, that he had barely restored them to their places when Gordon slammed the entrance door downstairs, and he says, If he had come straight up, we'd have been caught. I could have got out, but I don't believe I could have locked the door. But he stopped there a second or two, and I just made it. He had not time to make the back staircase, however. Annie Cochran opened the linen closet door, and he bolted in there. He heard Gordon unlock his room and enter it, and almost immediately reappear and demand of Annie Cochrane if she had been in it during his absence. An angry dispute followed, within a foot or two of the linen closet, not the less acrimonious because of its lowered voices, and of an almost hysterical quality in Gordon's. Every particle of his veneer had dropped from him, and the threats he made if he should find she had been in his room are not even to be recorded here. And now once again, where are we? We have, as against Gordon, A. The knife and the coil of rope, B. Our belief that he uses the car clandestinely at night. C. At least an indication that he set the fire under the boathouse. D. The cipher found in my garage. E. The notebook, in the same cipher. A man does not record his thoughts in this manner unless he wishes to keep them hidden. F. The linen strips muffling the oarlocks, and suggested to Halliday today by his place of concealment. The inventory of the main house shows a certain number of linen sheets. If one is missing, it will prove a strong factor in connecting him with the boat. G. The locking of his bedroom. H. Last and not least, an unpleasant personality. Halliday uses the word degenerate, but I am not prepared to go so far. As against all this, however, we have: A. The attack on him at the kitchen door and the manner in which he was tied, corresponding to the rope about Carroway. B. The sheep killing and murder of Carroway, taking place as they did before his arrival. C. The fact that Halliday could not identify him as the man he picked up in his car. D. The distinguishing mark by which the criminal has signed his crimes, so to speak, is the circle and triangle drawn in chalk. While this is not vital, Halliday found no chalk in the room. I have put to Halliday the boy's veiled inquiry about the doctor. It is impossible for us to experiment with the bell, but he thinks it could be distinctly heard from the main road. On the other hand, the arrival of Hayward on the scene almost as soon as I had got there is extremely puzzling. We have tonight paced off the distance in view of my statement that I had lighted only one match when the doctor's flashlight was turned on me. There seems to be no doubt that Hayward was on the property that night, but I do not accept the possibility, suggested by Halliday, that as he was in Greenough's confidence he had been watching me. A man does not, I imagine, go out on such an errand with his medical bag in his hand, and the doctor had carried his bag. I recall distinctly his taking from it the dressings for Gordon's head. August ninth, Leonardo da Vinci said, Patience serves as a protection against wrongs as clothes do against cold. For if you put on more cloth as the cold increases, it will have no power to hurt you. But I have put on all the extra patience I can find in my mental closet, and I am still uncomfortable. Whether Jane has noticed our ostracism I do not know, but I have, and so I think has Edith. So marked has it become that today I greeted Mrs. Livingstone with a warmth that slightly puzzled her. Nothing else new today. Halliday watched the main house last night, but no one left it. Annie Cochran reports that Mr. Bethel was suspicious of Gordon, and that the feud between them still continues. He declines the secretary's assistance as much as possible. That he is not certain, however, is shown by the care with which he now has the house locked up at night. He waits in the library, she says, until I have locked all the doors and windows. Then I bring him the keys except the one at the kitchen door. He lets me have that to get in with him in the morning. He is showing considerable courage to my mind. Mrs. Livingston was slightly ruffled on her arrival. It appears she had tried to leave her cards and livingstons on the old gentleman at the main house, but was finally compelled to put them under the door, although she could hear voices in the library. But she recovered sufficiently to tell us a new story, illustrative of the general state of the local mind. She says that three nights ago, Hadley, who keeps the hardware store in Oakville, when passing the cemetery where Carroway is buried, saw a figure walking slowly past the grave. It stopped, looked at the mound, and then moved on, fading into nothing at the clump of evergreens beyond it. Hadley seems to have made no further investigation. It is unfortunate, however, that Edith's story appeared today, evidently syndicated and receiving wide publicity. The confirmation is sufficient to send off most of the summer visitors, looking back over their shoulders, like Hadley, as they run. August 10th. At midnight last night, Halliday wakened me by throwing pebbles against the screen of my window. He was standing close underneath and asked me to put on something and work my way quietly toward the other house. "'What's wrong?' I asked." He's getting ready to go out, I think. He put his light out at eleven and turned it on again a few minutes ago. Halliday moved away, and as quickly as possible I dressed and followed him. He was under the trees, waiting, when I joined him, and together we worked quietly across the garden and toward the garage, coming out beyond it toward the lane. Here, while concealed ourselves, we had a full view of the house, but the light was out again and for a time it looked as though nothing were to happen. Halliday's plan was as follows. In case Gordon took the car, I was to follow it on foot at a safe distance as he went along the lane, while Halliday himself ran for my car. He would meet me at the fork of the road, and I would be able to tell him which of the two roads Gordon had taken. We stood together, well hidden in the shrubbery, for some time. A slight wind had come up, and we could hear small waves lapping against the piles of the pier, and the monotonous wail of the whistling buoy beyond Robinson's Point, always an eerie sound. Halliday, who had not had much sleep for a night or two, fell to yawning, and I was not much better off, when I heard some sort of stealthy movement in the woodland to our left, I touched Halliday on the arm to find him rigid and bending forward, staring toward the house. "'He's coming,' he said. "'Quiet.' The boy was raising his window screen with all possible caution. Even when it was accomplished he stood so long, probably listening and watching, that I began to think he had changed his mind and gone back to bed, but as he vent strode, he had done nothing of the sort. Up to this moment I had not suspected the use of the rope, although I believe Halliday had— I know my gaze was fixed on the kitchen door, with now and then a glance at the windows of the laundry and the gun room or rather in their direction. The darkness was extreme, but now I heard faint scraping against the wall of the house itself and realized that he was coming down by means of the rope. His coming was as stealthy as the preliminaries had been. He was probably halfway down, coming hand over hand, before I had interpreted the sound. I was not even aware that he had reached the ground when I saw him, a blacker shadow among other shadows, near at hand. But he did not come directly toward the garage— He walked along under the walls of the west wing to the gunroom window and stood there. Then with extreme caution he raised it an inch or two, as if to reassure himself that it had been unlocked from within, and closed it again. From there, with somewhat less caution, he moved to the corner of the house and seemed to be surveying the waterfront and the boathouse. We had our only real view of him then, as he stood silhouetted on the top of the rise. Note, the main house stands, as I think I have already recorded, rather higher than the remainder of the property. But suddenly something alarmed him— Neither Halliday nor I saw or heard anything, but evidently he did, and realized, too, his exposed position. He dropped to the ground. So unexpected was his sudden disappearance that I gasped. It was not until I heard him creeping along the ground that I understood his maneuver. He lost no time in his retreat, nor did he attempt to use the rope again. He raised the unlocked window, crept over the sill, and closed it again, all with surprising rapidity and silence, and sooner than we could have expected we heard him drawing up the rope from his room overhead— No interpretation of this is possible, without taking into consideration the really horrible stealth of the boy's manner. He was engaged on some nefarious business of his own, whether we can connect that with the crimes or not. As to the extremely dramatic manner in which he chose to escape from the house, when he had already unlocked the gunroom window, Halliday is divided between two theories, of which he himself favors the second. He may be merely dramatizing himself. You'll find a certain type of degenerate mind which is always acting for its own benefit. Or, and this is more likely... Our old friend Bethel was suspicious and is watching him. The old man's door commands his. He locks his door from the inside, uses his rope, and is free to go where he pleases. But he added after a pause, he unlocks the gunroom window too, so he can beat a retreat if he has to. That's the best I can do, and if it isn't correct, it ought to be. Today I am convinced beyond doubt that Gordon is our criminal, and I think even Halliday is shaken. I am no detective, but it seems to me that the boy, coming here during the height of the excitement about the sheep and young Carraway, found the way already paved for a career of secret crime, and adopting the methods and the symbol of some still undiscovered religious maniac, has carried on, one may say, under his banner. My psychiatric friends have discussed with me the neurotic aftermath of the war, the search for the sensational, the wooing of fugitive and secret pleasures, often brutal and violent, and the apotheosis of the criminal. They quote, too, von Kraft-Ebbing's theory that the instinct to kill is purely a legacy from the past, atavistic and more or less non-deliberate. In other words, that killing is inherent in all of us, and that to the ill-balanced, the destruction of the artificial inhibition, from any cause, turns them loose on the world, hereditary slayers and doers of violence. It would, excepting that, be possible to see in young Gordon the heir, not only to his own past, but to the crimes which preceded his arrival here, to see also that gradual process of identification by which he assumed his predecessor's attributes, and even the symbol by which he signed his deeds. I believe that in such cases, the mental degeneration sometimes continues to the point of a complete loss of personality. In that case, accepting this theory, it may even be that the boy now believes that he killed Carraway, and takes a secret and gloating pleasure in it, a theory which I shall be happy to place at Greeno's disposal if the opportunity arrives. It should be one after his own heart. Certainly one fact at least supports the idea. Halliday may be right, and the attack on him not have been made by Gordon. But there seems no reason to doubt that, sometime on the day before we got back, he crept into my garage and put the infernal symbol where we found it. We have discussed today at some length the desirability of notifying the police once more, but our recent experience with them is not reassuring. On the other hand i feel strongly that mr bethel should be warned but howard argues against it he knows something already he says he is on guard and the boy knows it then you have to remember that the game so far has been to strike in the dark and run that is if you are correct skipper and is a game without motive probably he is right there would be little chance for him if he attacked the old man he is too well known to be on bad terms with him "'Such a warning, also, might alarm Mr. Bethel to the point of getting rid of him, "'and after all the only chance we have is to let him go a certain length, "'and then, with our proofs, call in the police. "'But I am very uneasy tonight as I make this entry. "'I have not Halliday's easy optimism that he "'won't get away with anything without our knowing it. "'August 11th. "'Today is bright and sunny, and I am in a better mood. Edith came down this morning to an enormous stack of mail "'and stared at it incredulously. "'Great heavens,' she said, "'not Bill's.' As it turned out, however, they were not bills. Her article has brought out a curious fact. Almost everybody has a ghost story, and is anxious to tell it to somebody else. Even the most incredulous of us, apparently, has some incident stored in his memory not capable of explanation. And a visible percentage of these victims of thrills and shivers have written to her about the ghost in the light tower. She and Halliday are reading them on the veranda at this moment. Each has a heap of them, and such bits as these are to be heard. Here's a wonder, says Halliday. Hold my hand, won't you, while I read it to you? There's some ghostly thing touching my neck at this minute. It's a spider, says Edith coolly. You can wait. Listen to this. And so on. Which reminds me that I had a visit last night from Cuckoo Hadley, our village Don Juan, who sells hardware over his counter to pretty village matrons, and who was dubbed Cuckoo some years ago by a summer visitor who saw a resemblance to Byron in him and evidently knew the quotation. Note. The Cuckoo shows melancholia, not madness. Like Byron, he goes about wailing his sad lot, and now and then dropping an egg into someone else's nest. Headley was slightly sheepish. He knows, and he knows I know, that his road home at night lies nowhere near the cemetery. At the same time, he had something to tell me, and was determined to go through with it. I guess you've heard the story, Mr. Porter, he said. I don't suppose I'll ever hear the last of it, but there's a mistake being made, and I thought if Miss Edith was going to write it up, we'd better have it straight. It appears, then, that it was not near Curraway's grave that Hadley saw the figure, but in the old part of the cemetery, that there are some facts which he has not given out. The cemetery is surrounded by a white fence, and inside it is shrubbery. Hadley, it seems, was not alone, but was standing in the road, talking to a friend. If, as I imagine, the friend was a woman, it was surely a safe place for a rendezvous. It was the friend who saw the light, and who accounts for the suppression of this portion of the tale. It shone through the shrubbery, a small blue-white light about two feet from the ground, and directly in front of the headstone of one George Pierce, who died in the late 1700s. Hadley did not see the light, but the friend, persisting, he crept through the shrubbery to take a look around. It was then that he saw the figure, moving slowly and deliberately toward the trees. He seems to have no doubt that he saw an apparition, or that the information belongs to me, the reason he gives for the latter being that George Pierce is the gentleman who was, according to local tradition, shot and killed while attempting to escape the excise in the old farmhouse which is now a part of Twin Hollows. I have entered this here because the day seems given over to the supernatural. We have breakfasted with the spirit world, and seem about to lunch with it. Everything continues quiet at the other house. Jane and I today returned to Livingston's call. Although it seems absurd, I have never quite abandoned the hope of finding in Uncle Horace's unfinished letter a clue to the present mystery. I therefore took it with me, hoping for an opportunity to show it to Mrs. Livingstone, but none came. Dr. Hayward was there when we arrived and remained after we left. Perhaps because my own world is awry, I think the universe is so. But it seems to me that we were shown into what almost amounted to a situation, that Livingstone, usually dapper and calm, was flushed, and that Mrs. Livingstone was on the verge of tears. The doctor standing by the window hardly acknowledged our entrance, and remained standing, glowering and biting his fingers until we left. He, as I understand, soon to leave for a holiday. August 12th. No entry. August 13th. No entry. End of section 11